0: You know, they say that history is cyclical, that it, that it repeats itself. Well, I don't know if that's actually true. You can certainly understand why people think about that or they, they think that's true. Uh, you think about the cycles of history and how things just keep going in patterns. Napoleon, you know, a few hundred years ago, had a brilliant idea that he was going like, to take over the world and thought he was original in that. But before him, there was Genghis Khan who thought he was going to take over the world and thought he was original in that. And Alexander the Great. And, and you look at some of these people who've risen to power and what they've done and, and it just, just kind of repeats in patterns. Or you think about some of the wars that have been fought. This is a map actually of genocides that have happened within the last 117 years. You can see the big red circles are from um, those really drastic, severe ones, but um, even the small ones are huge loss of life, 75,000, 20,000, where whole groups of people were, ch- were annihilated, wiped out by leaders or military. And every time one of those things happens, we kind of wonder like, how could this happen? And never again, never again... But you look in the last hundred, fifteen, hundred, seventeen years, just how many times this has been repeated. Someone has been blamed for the problems of a nation, and uh, out of hate and prejudice, whole groups of people are, are wiped out. You know, this week, for those of you who are conspiracy theorists, you had a good week this week, didn't you? Um, the, the new, uh, the new um, documents were released about President Kennedy's assassination. And so um, I don't know how you felt about that. Maybe you're reinforced in your belief that it's a government conspiracy. Or, uh, that was kind of weird, another conspiracy, things just going blank here. Uh, Maybe you reinforced it as a government conspiracy or uh, an alien conspiracy or whatever it might be for you. Um, But, you know, there's been a lot written about these two guys, and it is kind of weird when you look at the assassination of Lincoln and Kennedy and how many similarities are in their story. If not, you've got something to do this afternoon, some really interesting stuff written about all of that, how history has repeated itself. And even in our families, there's an old saying that goes, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And the idea is you can start in poverty and and then work your way up to wealth and then after three generations you end up back in poverty, back just to shirt sleeves again. And we certainly know whether you agree with that proverb or not, we certainly know that history repeats itself in families, doesn't it? We see some of the same patterns repeated in families. Uh, my wife had her I had our first daughter, Ellie, when she was 24. Her mom had her first daughter when she was 24. Her grandmother had her first daughter when she was 24. Just kind of these weird patterns. And you're like, how does that even happen? History seems to repeat itself. And I've been thinking about all, this a lot as we approach the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. For those of you who don't know about it, 500 years ago, a man by the name of Martin Luther, he started something in the middle of a very powerful but broken, uh, broken, corrupt, um, just unhealthy medieval church, he started a new movement of the gospel that, that, that actually caught fire, and it's part of what, it's, it's what we're still a part of today. But here's what I've been wondering about that. I've been wondering, I wonder how many times over the course of history, God has done that exact thing. He's raised up someone like a Luther. I wonder how many people have repeated that pattern and and they've been bold enough, courageous enough to stand for God in their generation and maybe at a different scale, but I wonder how many times history has repeated itself. And people have been off track, but God raised up someone to speak truth. Actually, I think about Steve Howard in that way, my predecessor, the former senior pastor here. I just think about how God used him in his generation to speak truth about what it really means to do, do church and to reach people differently and how our community is so different and our church is so different because of him history repeats itself. Uh, I also wonder on the other side, maybe on the, on the darker side, I wonder how many times the church of Jesus has found itself in a place like the medieval church, a place where it is, it is broken, it is corrupt, it is, it is chaotic, maybe dying, even dead. I wonder how many times the church of Jesus has found itself in a place like that. I think it's not been a few times. I think it happens quite a lot, and and to me, a new thought has occurred just recently, and that is that in that medieval church, you know, we look back at it now, for those of us who know about the Reformation and know the abuses that were going on there, we look back at it now, and we're kind of like, oh my gosh, that's so corrupt, that's so broken, that's so awful, how could that go on? But you know what I think? I think for the people living in those days, people were actually a part of that church, for them, it was just normal. It was church to them, right? Right? It's what they showed up for. It's what they knew. It's what they experienced. They didn't know any better. It was just church. Which I think is a warning sign for all of us, a warning shot or whatever for all of us here today. Just because something feels normal, especially church, just because it feels normal, it feels like it is what it should be, it doesn't mean that it is all that it's supposed to be. We're going to talk more about that today. But before I talk more about today... I want to go back, because I believe history repeats itself, and I think we can learn a lot from history. And I want to go back even before the Reformation, because the Reformation wasn't the first time that the people of God got way off track. I want to actually go back to the Old Testament people of Israel. Uh, See, the Old Testament people of Israel, they they were interesting because they were people who had been claimed by God... He rescued them from Egypt, he gave them land, he gave them culture, he gave them worship, he taught them how to worship himself, and he just gave it all as a gift. And he said, just, just keep worshiping me and worship me only, and you'll be fine. There are all kinds of things to worry about, and, but you know, if you, just, if you just worship me, if you trust me, you'll be fine. And then time went on in Israel they started paying attention to what was going on around them um, in other religions and other peoples around them. They started worshiping other gods. They started doing just obscene things as a part of their worship, stuff I'm not even going to talk about today. Uh, they started doing just really heartbreaking things as a part of their worship too. They started, they started even sacrificing for a period of time their children to false gods as a belief that that would make their life better, make their crops grow better. And, and you think about how horrific that was and how that grieved the heart of God that these people would sacrifice their children and and this is not what God wanted for them and so God kept raising people up to speak truth to them to say no 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 you're headed in the wrong direction this is ugly this is evil you're headed off a cliff and God kept speaking that to them over and over again through different prophets and they refused to listen And then finally, God removes protection and and the people of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, he's a Napoleon or a Genghis Khan or an Alexander before those guys, just like him though, he comes in and, and he annihilates Israel, he destroys Jerusalem, destroys their temple, which was a very big deal for the people of Israel. Because they had, they had suffered middle, military conflict before and they've lost battles before. But for their temple to be destroyed, the temple was the place where God had always dwelt. For, you know, in this series we're saying, where is God when? For the people of Israel, the answer was always, where is God? He's in the temple, no matter what. That's where we find him. That's where, that's where he dwells. That's his throne room. And now the temple is destroyed and the people are wondering, they're saying, how could this happen? What on earth is going on here? How could God let his temple be destroyed? No matter how far we have fallen short, why would God do this to himself? And where is God now? That his temple is gone and he's no longer dwelling there. In fact, there was a, a psalmist, a writer, who wrote a lament about this that gave voice to what the people were feeling, Psalm 74. Let's look at it. He says, Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? He's being a little dramatic here, I'm just going to tell you. But this is how it feels in life sometimes when you're going through a hard time. Uh, God had not said he was rejecting them forever. This was temporary. This was to bring them back to life and truth. But, but oh, they assumed it's a rejection forever, and that's how we are often when we're going through hard things, right? It feels like it's going to last forever. He says, why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed. He's saying, God, remember, you you gathered us. You bought us out of slavery in Egypt. You brought us here. You did all of this for us. Remember us. Mount Zion, where you dwelt, remember that too. And now turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. And you can just imagine the psalmist walking through the rubble of Jerusalem and looking at the glorious temple that you know David had given riches and wealth to be built and Solomon constructed and it was the most this amazing amazing place where God's presence fell down and and uh, God dwelt there and and he's walking through and he's looking around and he's saying God where pow why where are you And then he goes back and and he remembers how this whole thing happened. He remembers the devastation. He says, your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behave like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. So like men going at it, chopping down trees. That's how they chopped up the temple. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. And, And so it's not just the destruction of the temple that's disheartening. It's what this all means. It's the implications of this. He goes on. He says, we are given no signs from God now. Right? Where is God? How do we go and find him? How do we get direction in life? God, his, his dwelling place is gone. He says no prophets are left and none of us knows how long this will last. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them? And so the psalmist is struggling with this because not only is the temple destroyed, but evil people are mocking and they're saying, some God, right? If this was truly a powerful God, how could he let his temple be destroyed? And then there are other people who are are just, you know, accusing the people of Israel and just saying, good riddance, you know, we're glad you guys are wiped out. You're a scourge of the earth anyway. And so the psalmist is looking around at, at, at how the people of God have failed and, and how God seems to have moved away and, and, and he just doesn't know what to think. He doesn't know what to do. And then the spirit inspires him with a thought. Causes him to remember something that changes everything. Verse 12, but God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. Suddenly with this thought, Things begin to change. But God is my king from long ago, and he brings salvation on the earth. It doesn't matter that there's rubble all around me. God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It doesn't matter that the temples are destroyed. God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. And suddenly, a whole new line of thinking and emotion is opened up to the psalmist. Here's what he says He says, It was you, God, who split open the sea by your power, you broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan, this this big sea creature, and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter, and suddenly all of the rubble doesn't matter anymore, does it? Because the writer, he remembers something. He remembers that God is our king from long ago. He brings his salvation to the earth. That he set the sun and moon in their place. He created the world from nothing. And he will not be stopped. Suddenly, there is hope again. And now I want you to think ahead to the Reformation. Because history repeats itself. And the church is so broken. Violent, bloodthirsty, corrupt, corrupt. I mean, oppressing people in the worst kind of ways, holding salvation, dangling it over people's heads, and, and terrifying people, saying, if you're not good enough, if you don't give enough, if, you're, if you don't do enough good works, if you don't do what we say, then then you're gonna, you're gonna experience hell and fire and God can't love you, and, and just extorting money from people, controlling people, manipulating people, all doing it in the name of God. So ugly, so violent, so broken And not only that, but this church of the Middle Ages was one of the most powerful entities of their day. They had armies bigger than kingdoms had armies. They were a political power. And so this great and powerful wicked church, what does God do? God brings that church to its knees through through the work of some simple German monk named Martin Luther and some of his friends. And you know what that that tells us? Same thing the psalmist said in Psalm seventy four. It was you, God. That wasn't about Martin Luther. That was God doing something in the middle of His church to bring life and truth again. But let's think about today now, because in different ways, I certainly wouldn't say it's like the Church of the Middle Ages. But in different ways, the Church in America, at least, it isn't doing so well. And I've been talking to you about this and if you read the stats, you know this, that churches are getting smaller and denominations are shrinking and predicting that they will fail in the next uh, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, there are increasing numbers of people who don't identify with any faith at all. They just say, I don't believe in any of that. And, and we look at that and we wonder, don't we? God, what's going on here? Not only that, but, but people who Maybe you're outside of the church, look and they say, huh, some God. You know, if, if Jesus were really who he said he was, then wouldn't the, wouldn't the church in America be in better shape? Not only numerically, but qualitatively. You think about all the abuses that happen in the church and all the broken things that go on in churches. And there are other people who are saying, good riddance, you know, it's about time. Let's let's get rid of that. The televangelists and the abusive clergy and, and church politics gone amok. Let's let's get rid of all of that stuff. And then we're left here wondering, so God, where where are you in all of this? So as you wrestle with this question, where is God when the church is failing? First thing I want to remind you of is I want to remind you to differentiate the true church from what we call church. Differentiate the true church from what we call church. See, we put the name church on a lot of different things. We use it as a label or a title, but everything that we call church is not necessarily what God calls church that the true church of God is unstoppable. It's his church. And just like Psalm 74 says, he's got all the power in the world, not only to create the world, uh, to create the stars, the heavens, he's not only got the power to do all of that, but, but his church is unstoppable. Jesus once said that he would build his church, he would establish his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He meant nothing would be able to stop his true church. So when we look around and we see things that are failing, maybe our first thought should be, well, maybe what's failing is not actually the true church. Maybe that's just stuff that we call church. But it's not actually of God or from God or it's veered off so far that it no longer is doing the work of God. See, what we learn throughout time, because history repeats itself, is that God keeps working through his true church in every generation. So even though the temple was destroyed and the people were corrupt in their worship, God raised up a faithful remnant that were then the seeds that reestablished Israel and even rebuilt the temple. In the Middle Ages, even though the church was so broken, God raised up reformers like Luther and others to speak a word of truth. I hope in today, even in the midst of the declining American church, where I think the church has got so many things wrong with it, I hope what is true is that God is raising up a congregation here in Ellisville, Missouri, to be a faithful remnant, to be a part of his true movement in the world. When we look at what is failing, we have to ask the question, is that, is that the true church or is that just stuff that we call church? Because there's a difference. And sometimes they're the same and sometimes they're not. And then secondly, um, and, and this is, this is so personal. This is not just like, a corporate exercise. It, I think this is a really personal question. Identify which church you are a part of. And I don't mean like what church do you belong to? Where's your memberships? You know, St. John Church, some other church. But, but which thing are you a part of? If you lived back in Old Testament Israel, do you think you'd find yourself among the prophets? Or do you think you'd find yourself along with the masses of people who are bowing down to these false gods? If you lived 500 years ago during the time of the Church of the Middle Ages before the Reformation, would you be a part of these reformers who said, this isn't, this isn't right, this isn't true? Or would you be a part of the masses just going along with it? Because remember what I said earlier, what those people experienced, it was just normal to them. It seemed right to them. See, I think all of us have to just take a minute and say, so in my life, in my life, which thing am I about Am I about something called church that may, may or may not be the true church? Or am I about this, this thing, this movement of God that is unstoppable? And I know that's a hard question to answer, like, how do I really know? Well, here are some things that came out of the Reformation that I think are really helpful. The Reformers talked about solas, three solas. In other words, sola just means only or alone. It's a Latin word. And they talked about three things that were just the foundation of what it means to truly be a part of the real church. And they said the first is grace alone. That, that grace, that we, that we just kind of live by this idea of grace alone, that God's grace is enough, that God is, is favorably disposed toward us, that he is kind, that he is generous, that he is good, that he is loving, that's who he is. That's his inclination toward us, that he's not a God of anger and wrath, he's not a God that we have to appease, we don't have to make sacrifices to keep him happy, that's not who he is, but he's a God who loves us undeservedly, and he's so good, See, if that's something you believe, then um, it's a good sign that you're part of the true church, that you're part of the right thing. If, if God starts to get fuzzy for you and he's this cosmic being that you have to keep happy and he's ready to smite, might, smite people and you gotta, you gotta please him and you gotta make sacrifices to him in order to, or if you think it's somehow up to you to win his favor, to earn his favor, man, that's, that's not of God. Uh, the second solo so grace alone. The second one is faith alone faith alone, that the whole character of our relationship with God is characterized by faith, not by the things that we do, not by trying to be good people, not by the amount of money that we give. All of that's an important part of life after, but, but truly our relationship with God is a faith relationship where we, where we just receive his promises, and we believe them, and we trust them, and we walk according to them. And that's what changes everything, faith alone. The third is scripture alone, that we wrestle with the scriptures, even the hard parts of scriptures that we don't like or we don't understand. We don't just set them aside. We we contend with them. We wrestle with them. We ask for the spirit's guidance. We hold ourselves accountable to the wisdom of scripture over our own human wisdom. Uh, And then actually, those are the three that we talk a lot about, but there were actually five solos. There was another one, Christ Alone, that it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done. That's our focus. And we do it all for the glory of God alone. God's glory alone is the fifth one. You see, there's some help for us there. Say, what am I really about? Is this just about attending something and being a part of a cultural thing or a religious thing? Is this about morality? What is this about for me? Or is it about living by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and and holding myself accountable to the scriptures and using my life to give God glory in response to all that he's done? See, that'll help you know. But here's what I can promise you, that even when you're on the right track, even when we are being part of the true church. Even when you're living your life for the right things, that doesn't mean things will always be easier, that they'll go well. It doesn't guarantee success for every church, growth for every church, at least in the short term. And no matter which side of this we find ourselves on, and I think the truth is we probably find ourselves all over, uh, here's, here's a truth from Scripture that we need to hold on to today. That out of death, God makes life. And again, Man, you can see this back in the Garden of Eden. You can see this in the destruction of Israel. You can see this in Jesus' own death. We are a people who believes that our Savior died for us and not only did God bring new life back to him through that, but we believe that our Savior died for us and as a result, the world has an opportunity to live again. Out of death, God makes life. Out of the ashes, God does some of his most beautiful creative work and some of you just need to sit with that for a minute today because your life is ashes. You're living in the midst of rubble right now and you're looking around and you're saying, I don't, I don't understand where God is. I don't know how this will ever get better. And yet out of death, God makes life. He does some of the most beautiful creative work. And I think this is so important to believe. In, in, in fact, you know what I think? It's just my hypothesis. I think, I think, and it's guided by scripture, but I think that part of the challenge, part of the problem, part of the way that, um, that, that we as an American church, broadly speaking, are killing ourselves is because we don't believe this is true, and as a result, we're unwilling to die to ourselves. You know what I mean by that? We, we are so comfortable and we're so prosperous and we like it that way. And so we're unwilling to die to our preferences and our comfort. We we wanna live within our comfort zones. We don't wanna wanna step out of our comfort zone. We don't have to die to ourselves in that way. We, we We wanna preserve our heritage our ethnic heritage and that gets blended into this and we want to be proud of our roots and and that's okay but we want to hold on to that we don't want to die to that we don't want to to let go of that we're afraid of letting go of that we want to hang on to our preferences of how we like church and how we like music and the things that we like in our services we we want to hold on to this stuff our our prejudices our biases all of that stuff we are afraid to die to ourselves because we don't really believe I think that out of death, God brings life. But Jesus said something so profound. He made this so clear. He said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, for me, whoever's willing to die to themselves, for me and for the gospel, they will save it. See, this applies to you, but this applies to churches. That, That churches congregations of people who are willing to die to themselves for the sake of the gospel, they will live. And those who are not willing to die to themselves, who are afraid of that because they don't know that out of death God brings life, they're they're afraid of dying to themselves, God, God will bring them to their knees again and again. He will bring them to an end of themselves, not as a punishment, but because out of death God brings life. And so if we don't willingly die, God will kill us to make us alive again, to bring life to this world again. And he's done it over and over and over again. See, the answer to the question, where is God when the church is failing? I think it's pretty simple. God is still at work. And he's still working powerfully through his true church. We just need to have eyes that see it, that look for it. I'll take your question. 636-686-0140. I mostly stream the service online. Am I doing the church a disservice or helping it? fail by not coming in person more often? Does tele religion and future technology hurt churches? Hey, I thank you for this question. And um, again, I want to say hi to all of our live streamers. We're glad that we have you. And I think this is a, this is, live stream can be a great, great blessing um, because it can connect us in powerful ways, we talk about that. It can keep us connected with truth and with uh, God's character and hearing God's teaching and, and in a virtual way gathering together. It can be a really, really great thing. Um, but I think God wants more f- for you than, and I don't know how you do it, if this is your mode of just sitting there alone, being a part of church alone. Because there's something about relationships that, uh, that is really powerful, and that's why we come and we do this together. There's something about being together, that we're not alone, that we're a part of a body. That's an important thing for you, and, and so um, maybe there's a way that you can do that with others. Also, serving and giving and living out our faith collectively together is, is another thing that you might be missing out on, and maybe you have other venues for that in your life. Um, so I wouldn't say that, that this, is, this is, you know... And please be generous and gracious with yourself. You're, you're not destroying the church by doing this. But I do think God wants you to have relationships, faith-based relationships where you're surrounded with people who are encouraging you. God wants you to find opportunities to use your gifts and serve. You know, we talk about one one 15, 6 here. Uh, give God one day a week in worship and rest. Be someone to another person for uh, in a life-giving relationship. Um, Spend 15 minutes a day in a faith-building discipline and then live the six other days serving God by serving others. And so a uh, live stream is a part of that and I think it's still better if you do it with others and that's why we're starting house churches and Pastor Doug Moss is working on this to say, hey, maybe you can just do church at home but you can do it in a more New Testament way. But uh, make sure you're doing the rest of those things because when we are, when we are living out those things, then the church is fine. You don't necessarily have to come to a building like this, but you do need the full picture of what it means to be on a journey with others and uh, serving God by serving others, making a difference in other people's lives. Where is God when I'm struggling with what role I should play in the church uh, when they have been failing? I've been hurt by a church failing before. Yeah, and you know, the church failing, I I talk about this kind of big statistical picture of the church failing in America, but churches fail all the time. You know, I think we're a pretty healthy church, and we stri- strive to be a healthy church. But uh, there are plenty of times where we fail. We hurt each other. We misstep. We don't conduct ourselves in love and charity. Um, we get ahead of, of God's spirit sometimes. We wound each other, and that's that's a reality of what it means to be church. That's not an excuse, but it is a reality. And I know um, sometimes that can be little stuff that's easy to forgive. Sometimes this can be so so painful be so difficult to get past this stuff Um, here's what I just tell you Um, forgive as you've been forgiven there's a lot that Jesus says about that that um, that we recognize the the brokenness of our own lives and how we hurt others and that gives us humility as we try to forgive others and so maybe maybe it's uh, just just forgiving what happened before um, and then just asking God to give you courage and strength to be a part of what it is that he wants you to do today. I, this idea of calling and God, what do you want me to do? That's a lofty thing. And I don't think it's a matter of you know, praying f- for five minutes on a Sunday and then God gives you the answer on the way home. Um, I think this is a, th- a thing that takes um, regular seeking of God. God, what, what do you want me to do? And this is a prayer that we pray in our family all the time because it's, it's an ever-changing thing. What I'm doing today, God may want more or want different for me. And so I'm constantly uh, with my family praying this very question. God, what role do you want me to play? But uh, as you forgive, keep praying that that thing. And I think sometimes God is not quick in answering this question because if he gave us the answer, if he gave us the big picture, we'd be overwhelmed. We'd say no way. And so God is good enough to help us move along slowly and, and grow and be able to eventually do the thing that he's calling us to do, but, but stay at it. Keep asking God what it is that you want me to do and make it clear to me. And I promise you over time, he'll reveal it. Be patient, also be forgiving. Why does God allow false churches and dangerous religious cults to grow? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. The Bible warns that, um, especially in the last days, and we kind of think about the last days differently here. Um, we think the last days are all the time... After Jesus, that we've been living in the last days for about two thousand years, but he does promise that that uh, that people will chase after what their itching ears want to hear, that the love of many will grow cold, that people will be deceived and led astray, and um and he says that's that's a reality. I think what's more interesting to me probably is you know we focus a lot on the, these leaders and what they're doing. I think what's probably more interesting to me is the condition of people who get swept into this. Because when I really think about who are the people who get swept into a cult or some weird destructive fringe group, um, when I really think about who they are, I can identify with I think a lot of things that make people susceptible to this. Um, There are people who are hungry for belonging or purpose. Yeah, me too. There are people who are hungry for guidance, someone to tell them, like, hey, this is, this is what you should do, and, and they want that so badly. Sometimes they're hungry for um, different answers to life. And, and so when people can promise these things, even if they're not good answers or false answers, people flock to that. Not only that, I also identify with the fact that, that um, I often, I, I wander. Um, I, I don't stay rooted in the scriptures, which are the guide. Um, there are times where my, my quiet time with God becomes short or non-existent and I'm not asking God's guidance every day. There are times when I'm separating myself from Christian community of other people who can say, hey, hey, are, are you okay? It seems like something's going on in you. I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that I see the fruit of the spirit in your life. And so uh, those things that lead people into these are the same things that I think we all struggle with. What I see this as is really a call for us to stay rooted in community, in the scripture, in quiet time with God, in prayer time, staying rooted in what we know to be true, because this can be all of us. And in fact, I think that's part of, they may not be dangerous religious cults, but I think part of what's going on in the church in America is that we've just kind of fallen asleep as Christians, we just are going through the motions, we're just, you know, doing what church leaders tell us to do, and they're not doing horrible cult things, but, but, they're, but they're not speaking to us about what God is actually calling us to do in our generation, and we're kind of just checked out. We're just not really going through it. And I think that's a dangerous place for any of us to be, whether you're part of a church that's just asleep at the wheel or whether you're part of something dangerous. And I identify with that. Um, this is what we as people do all the time. It's a human issue. Um, so where is God in all this? What is, what is he doing? Well, um, I think what God is doing is, is calling us to be wide awake and to stay rooted and all the things that I talked about a minute ago. Uh, here's the other thing I just will call out. It's not exactly a part of this question, but no matter what else is growing around us, I just want you to know that while the church in America is suffering, the Christian church around the world is thriving because God's unstoppable. And so God is at work. He's doing his work. Uh, it's beautiful. It's brilliant. Um, it's, it's just here that we're struggling. And, and maybe God is bringing us to an end of ourselves, bringing us to death so that he can bring new life out of us. Or maybe he's just calling us to die to ourselves, trusting that whenever we willingly die to ourselves for the sake of the gospel, when we put ourselves last and put the gospel first, we'll live. I don't know what he's doing, but along around the world, in places that you would never imagine, places like China where it's still illegal to be a Christian, the church of Jesus is thriving. It's unstoppable. I think they cut me off. Okay, um... And, you know, here's how I'd like for us to just, just, uh, just to put an exclamation point on this moment. I talked about the Reformation. I talked about Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a guy who wrote a number of hymns, songs. And um, he actually, you know, he actually, like, upset people because he just wrote songs that were kind of his own ideas, not scripture. He kind of wrote theology and, and narratives and, and he put them to popular music and people hated that, of course, because they, they didn't understand how you could do that. But he was, trying to, he was trying to reach people and one of the most famous hymns that he wrote is a hymn called A Mighty Fortress. And in this hymn, um, what Luther describes is he describes this epic battle. It starts off in verse one talking about this, this evil one, the devil who is at work against everything beautiful and right and he's powerful and no one can stand against him. And he's just having his way in the world and he's messing things up and he's breaking people. And then in verse two, it talks about how God raises up for us a champion. He raises up for us his son, Jesus. To come and fight the evil one, and to give us victory, and, and then throughout the rest of the hymn, again, this is not in scripture. This is theology, but it's not in scripture. But he, but he, he describes he describes what Jesus has done, how Jesus has has has, uh, has is fighting for us, and, and Luther's living at this time in his life where he's under a death sentence for speaking truth from the scripture, and he's saying, but you know what? No matter what happens, what happens, Jesus is going to keep marching forward. His church is unstoppable. So as people who sit here today and maybe we feel like we're on the losing team sometimes or maybe we're concerned, here's a reminder to you. Jesus' church is unstoppable. And even if we're on the wrong side of it, he will lovingly bring us to death so that we can find new life because his kingdom remains forever.